This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Tuesday, February 21st, and a U.S. president has never entered a war zone where we weren't fighting until now. We start here. Amid the sound of air raid sirens, President Biden makes a surprise appearance in the capital of Ukraine. Freedom is priceless. What this moment meant, not just to Ukrainians, but to Russians as well. An earthquake rocks Turkey again. We felt about 20 uh, to 30 aftershocks, uh, one of them extremely intense. Our team was on the ground as an aftershock shattered what little sense of security this region has left. And it's a battle for the future of the internet. They could have tried to stop it or avoid it. It would have been a different story. How one family's case at the Supreme Court could reshape a trillion dollar marketplace. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. Later this week, Ukraine will mark one year since Russian missiles began raining down on Kiev. Since Russian tanks began rolling across its borders from several directions, Russia's goal here, remember, was clear, to capture or kill the Ukrainian president. To install its own regime, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky was so obviously a target that his location was unknown to the world from hour to hour. It was just too dangerous. President Zelensky is saying that he is target number one, his family now in hiding. And this Since then, Zelensky has reasserted control over many of the areas around Kiev. He's managed to travel abroad to ask for support. And yesterday, just ahead of that one-year mark, Americans woke up to the news that President President Joe Biden had made his way into Ukraine, into the capital of this country, still very much under attack, to meet Zelensky in person. Biden slipping out of Washington early Sunday under the cover of darkness, flying not on Air Force One, but on a small C-32, its blinds drawn. ABC senior national correspondent Terry Moran is with us. Terry, you've served as our chief foreign correspondent in the past. You've covered the Biden administration closely. How significant is a visit like this from the U.S. president? It's huge, Brad. This is the most consequential, the most important thing an American president has done on the world stage in years. Uh, Yes, the enormous amount of American arms and money and power uh, flowing into Ukraine, that matters more than anything. But this mattered, too. Morning, Mr. Welcome. Yes, other world leaders had made it to Kyiv already, including the prime minister of of Great Britain and the president of France. But when the American president goes and affirms his unwavering and unflagging commitment to this outgunned, outmanned, outsized country fighting for its life, its very existence, that sends a message to the world that the old rules still matter and that the U.S. will back that up. Kiev stands. And Ukraine stands, democracy stands, the Americans stand with you, and the world stands with you. Now the question is, for how long, how long will American support last? But this was a major event 
in America's projection of power around the world, and President Biden knew it, and and it was it was a personal accomplishment as well. How did it work? How do you make this type of visit to essentially a war zone secure? You, you, you can't uh, ultimately make it 100% secure. And other presidents have gone to war zones, right? Only one president, by the way, ever came under enemy fire in a, in a combat situation. That was Abraham Lincoln in a battle outside mm-hmm. of Washington, D.C. He went to see what it looked like and somebody recognized him and took a shot at him, hit the guy next to him, actually, who survived. Wow. But, you know, Franklin Roosevelt and obviously uh, Lyndon Johnson went to Vietnam. So did Nixon and Uh, Presidents Bush and Obama went to Afghanistan and Iraq, as did President Trump, went to Afghanistan. But this is different. No American troops, technically, are on the ground in Ukraine. Huh. That had never happened. Huh. Like, like we don't go to other people's war zones, generally. No. And we hear uh, genuine concern on the part of the United States military, which considers its job when the president goes somewhere to keep him safe. Uh, and I, while they had assets around him, they had no boots on the ground of any significance. Uh, and, and there was that astonishing scene in St. Michael's Square. We need to go. Moving go to the next spot. Where the president and uh, President Biden, President Zelensky walk out and the air raid sirens go off, right? And how do you do that? Well, you got to first persuade the American security apparatus. The national security folks in the Pentagon and elsewhere, and of course, your personal security detail, the Secret Service, that it can be done. That decision made on Friday, actually, was the final go-round in the Oval Office, and he gave it the green light. Uh, He left, uh, actually, very early Sunday morning uh, because he had to fly to Poland and then take a train because you can't fly through the airspace of a war zone. And he took a train that, what is it, six, seven hours to get to Kyiv. Mm. Uh, and then very interestingly, the United States military contacted the Russian military, said, our president is going to be in that country. We are told they informed the Russians for, quote, deconfliction purposes. That's a fancy way of saying, please don't kill our president. You won't want that. You won't want the consequences. I don't think Vladimir Putin is not like ISIS or Al-Qaeda. He doesn't want to kill Joe Biden. Uh, and the Russians have come out, the Kremlin has come out and said, we, we assured his security. So even in the midst of all this tension and terrible war and that we are arming the Ukrainians with weapons that allow them to kill a lot more Russians, there was an arrangement made that got Biden safely to Kiev. Well, and so why? Because like you said, no other president has ever gone to another country's war that we weren't fighting in. Like like George W. Bush wasn't showing up in Sudan to show his support for anyone. Like what made this worth it for, for Biden, for the U.S.? Because... Joe Biden sees this as the fundamental challenge of the post-Cold War world. In other words, the 21st century challenge. These are countries, Russia, China, and others, who want to break the old rules. Russia's stated aim is to erase a country from the map, and they are ethnically cleansing it, to erase a people and their heritage. We thought we had put that behind us. And maybe it took this old Cold Warrior to recognize that this was a new kind of threat that had to be answered with the old resolve and with the old commitment, the commitment of the European alliance, the commitment of American power and American values. Remind us that freedom is priceless. It's worth fighting for for as long as it takes. And that's how long we're going to be with you, Mr. President, for as long as it takes. What this visit meant to the Ukrainian people 
having been there during this war, you can sense in them. It's like being in London during the Blitz or something like that. They will fight to the last man. Mm. And they know that the world will tire before they do. Mm. But to have the American president for a few hours share their land under attack by the Russian forces, sealed the connection between Biden and Zelensky, between Biden, the Ukrainian people, and between Ukraine and America. Putin thought Ukraine was weak and the West was divided. Putin lost long before Biden visited Kyiv. But he's just been plain wrong. Plain wrong. But it sealed his defeat. They are never going back. They are Westerners. They are Westerners mm. forever. Like if the goal was to drag Ukraine back into the old Soviet guard, like that's never happening, you're saying? Never happening because of the skill and courage and resourcefulness of the Ukrainians themselves, but also because Biden backed them and brought the alliance along with them. And the alliance hasn't cracked, it's expanded. Mm. And, and I think they know that their future, if they can get out of this, and I think they're determined to do so, lies westward, no longer with Moscow. And that's a huge historical change. All right, Terry Moran in Washington. Thank you so much. Thanks. It is almost impossible to imagine the collective trauma in towns along the Turkey-Syria border. The death toll from the earthquake earlier this month is now inching closer to 50,000. Then, yesterday, another earthquake hit the same region. Technically, this would be an aftershock, and yet its magnitude, 6.3, is stronger than many deadly quakes elsewhere in the world. And so now, running from collapsing buildings, you had people who have already been through several disasters and now are trying desperately to survive one more. This time, one of ABC's own reporters was there on the ground as this earthquake unfolded. Let's take it now to Turkey. ABC's Ibtisin Gwenfud was there, and Ibs, I assume that you felt this as it was happening, right? Yes, of course, we could feel it. Um, we were at a camp in Samandak that's in the epicenter of that earthquake here in Hatay province. Um, and we could feel it. It lasted about 15 seconds. Uh, the buildings around us shook. Uh, thankfully, we were outside, uh, but we were standing near a bus and we could see it moving from side to side, triggering the suspensions. Uh, the buildings around, uh, some of them uh, were already cracked, and I suspect this cracked them even more. Uh, my friend and I moved over away from the bus, afraid that it was going to tip and, and, and topple over us. Uh, and a man said to come to the ground, so we did that, and we sat next to one another, holding each other until it stopped. Um, after that, we felt about 20 um, uh, to 30 aftershocks, uh, one of them extremely intense. Um, during this moment, uh, a lot of people from uh, that camp, uh, most of them were sitting outside, huddling around fires to keep warm, and they started praying and, and shouting to get away from the buildings. So uh, a sign that, you know, they, they, they knew that they, they had lived that before and they knew it was bound to happen. Um, so 
they were scared for their lives um, and won't risk them again. Uh, actually, some of them uh, decided to leave the camp uh, in the middle of the night, uh, right after the earthquake. Uh, and I asked them, where are you going? And they were simply going to jump in their car, unsure where to go next, but away from this camp that they deemed too close to a building that was still standing. Um, and right now I can uh, even hear uh, some of the fearful whispers under the hundred or so tents uh, around me. Uh, this is going to be another uh, long night um, and not many, I suspect, uh, will be able to sleep tonight. And Ibtisim, you, you kind of mentioned buildings that hadn't been cracked already. Is this one of those things where any building that didn't crumble already is strong enough to withstand this? Or are there buildings that were kind of hanging by a thread and then collapsed because of this? I mean, how damaging was this thing? Well, from the scenes that we've seen here uh, in Samanda, uh, most of the buildings um, w that would have collapsed already have. And what you're seeing is that uh, you have lower uh, buildings that could withstand this a bit more uh, that are still standing um, and that have not suffered ma major uh, damage from what we can see from this uh, latest earthquake. But we know that that's uh, the case uh, in other places in Turkey. We know that some new New buildings have collapsed as a result of this earthquake and that people are currently under the rubble trapped as well there. So new rescue efforts are ongoing to save those lives. And already just within hours of that earthquake, you had the government reporting multiple people dead, over 200 people injured. So obviously a lot of damage still continuing in the region. Uh, Ibtisin Gwen Food, I'm so glad you're okay. Uh, stay safe and thank you so much. Thank you, Brad. Next up on Start Here, the case social media companies have been dreading for years has arrived. We're back in a bit. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. The Supreme Court has been pretty quiet lately, but starting today, you're about to witness one of the biggest cases of the year and potentially the biggest case in the history of social media companies. You might think that's hyperbole, but think about what social media companies are. It's a chance for people to shout whatever they want into the digital void, right? If someone says something you don't like, you can argue with them. If someone says something dangerous, you could potentially hold them liable, but you'd never sue the social media company itself for allowing them to say it. That's because for 27 years, there's been this obscure rule called Section 230 that keeps social media companies shielded from lawsuits about the stuff their users post. But for the first time in those 27 years, the Supreme Court is taking a look 
at that rule. Let's bring in ABC senior Washington reporter Devin Dwyer, who covers the court and actually got an exclusive interview. He's the only reporter to talk to these plaintiffs on camera. Devin, how closely is this case being watched today? Well, this is a huge deal, Brad, for any American who thinks they've been harmed uh, by social media use or website and internet service for decades. As you said, those companies have been protected, really blanket sweeping immunity by Section 230 of the Federal Communications Decency Act. Uh, And that means you can't get in the courthouse door to bring a claim against a company for something that's been posted on those sites or even over their decisions to moderate what appears on the sites. That's all shut down out of the gate by this law. But with this case, for the first time, the Supreme Court justices are going to take a close look at whether that goes too far. And here she's in, looks like she's in Paris. She's in. um, So this one must have been one of the last pictures. And it's all a case uh, that comes over the death of this uh, 23-year-old California woman uh, at the hands of ISIS in 2015 in Paris. Six scenes where terrorists injured more than 350 people and killed at least 129, including Cal State Long Beach student Noemi Gonzalez. What would someone have found if they had met her for the first time? She looked like her mom. She was beautiful. Uh, She was friendly with everyone. These are the parents of Naomi Gonzalez, really the, the, the love of their lives. Uh, first in her Mexican-American family to attend college, just a devastating loss. I never thought that something is going to happen to her. You could never imagine it. Never. While they understand that YouTube and parent company Google shouldn't be held liable necessarily for the existence of ISIS propaganda videos on the website, again, uh, third parties can post a lot of videos on YouTube, but they'd say the use of algorithms by Google to recommend and promote certain content is what's particularly dangerous and should be open to lawsuit, some accountability in court. If they were, if they knew all these things were happening, even though on YouTube and the media, they could have tried to stop it or avoid it, it would have been a different story. They allege that those algorithms, those uh, soft pieces of software code that promote videos, amplify them, if you will, uh, were devastating. In this case, they say it helped recruit the terrorists that killed their daughter. Again, they just want the chance to present evidence to make their case in court, but they can't even do that. And they're hoping the justices will put some limits on this immunity and say uh, they can begin to make that case. If some changes can be done to prevent these uh, terrorist people to keep in killing human beings, but that is a big thing. But that's a huge deal, Devin, because like up until now, it's always been kind of like a company. Companies have moderation policies, but that's just like if you don't like it, go find a different social media company to use. It, it, it sound, like if someone yells fire in a crowded theater, you might sue that person. You don't get to sue the theater for gathering all the people in the one room to start with, right? Like, is I'm wondering, like, is this a way to just target tech companies that people don't like? Yeah, well, that's exactly the concern that Google, Facebook, Twitter, and other social media companies have. They say, listen, we should be protected uh, under the law. By promoting open video platforms and prohibiting discrimination by video providers, This legislation allows open access to the pipelines that deliver information and entertainment. 
It was passed in 1996 as, as an attempt to sort of insulate the internet, make it, um, you know, a site of innovation and a place of free exchange of ideas. Um, they say they certainly don't condone ISIS videos. 95% of them, a Google spokeswoman told me, are rooted out automatically by their their algorithms. Um what the family is saying, though, is that the 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 promotion, the recommendation, and we've all seen those recommendations to us of various content. Hey, take a look at this video or that video. That act of recommending, they say, is different. Now, Google pushes back, says that it's part of publishing is is organizing information. There are billions of pieces of information. Uh, we'd all be suffering, uh, you know, a giant headache trying to look through information online if we didn't have algorithms to help us sort and, and, and make sense of it. So they're saying, you know, we need to have that and that should be protected as well. But this dispute over just what uh, Congress intended back in 96 to give immunity to is really what the justices are going to be looking at with big implications for the future of the Internet. Everybody agrees. Yeah, I was going to say, say it does go away. Say Section 230 gets struck down by the court in a few months. What does that mean for the rest of the Internet? Like anyone who's ever used a social media company, like huge parts of the broader economy now basically rely on Internet speech. Like that's a huge part of our lives since this rule was written. What would happen if that goes away? Yeah, I, I talked, Brad, to Matthew Bergman. He's the, an attorney in California and founder of the Social Media Victims Law Center. He works with hundreds of families to try to bring claims against some of these companies over allegations of you know, addiction issues, mental health issues, suicide in some cases. We, we know on a, on a macro level, uh, for instance, that the 146% increase in suicide in the 12 to 16-year-old cohort uh, matches exactly the increase of social media use among young people. He says by rolling back Section 230, this would really empower families that have suffered at the hands of these companies, allegedly, to bring their cases and make their claims. They would be vindicated. It would be justice and it would be accountability. On the other hand, the industry uh, says that this would be a disaster. The internet would never be um, the same again. Companies are likely to choose between one of two environments, either over-sanitizing and offering a, a kindergarten approach or uh, throwing up their hands and doing nothing. And then we have a, a total chaotic, anything goes environment. And, and that's not what users or advertisers want. They say algorithms could be subject to liability. You're going to see some companies dial way back uh, on, on their use of algorithms to filter. Essentially, they say it could be the Wild West in some corners of the internet. No more moderation. On the other hand, you could see some sites crack way down. Hyper-scrutinized material. If I was running a social media company, I'd be like, no, no, you guys don't get to talk about it. You can share recipes. Like That's all you're allowed to do from now on on the site. Exactly. And so they say that, you know, this is all about money, right? Lawsuits are money. They're an annoyance, um, <laughs> financial annoyance as well to these companies. And so they're going to want to adjust their behavior. The other big question here is, is this really the place of the courts to be fixing this uh, dilemma for us? You know, they can come in and do a very blunt judgment. They can't, for example, set up a new regulatory framework that might be a better, more effective way to govern the internet. Frances Haugen, you remember her? She was the Facebook whistleblower who right. is an algorithmic specialist, and she testified before Congress about uh, some of the harms that these algorithms and social media companies are aware of, their products having. She says, really, this is up to Congress. So what I do expect to happen is if the Supreme Court rules, uh, you know, companies can be sued very rapidly 
uh, the big tech companies will put pressure on Congress to go through and figure out some kind of regulatory system. At the end of the day, she told me really what we need to be pushing for, regardless of the outcome in this case, uh, is to see our policymakers step up and really uh, set some rules of the road that haven't been set uh, in decades. And that's, uh, you know, that's a long time in Internet speak. All right. Uh, Devin Dwyer, huge case today. I know you'll be there. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brad. All right, one more quick break. When we come back, who's on first? Also, how big is first? One last thing is next. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. And one last thing. This field, this game, is a part of our past, Ray. We live in quickly changing times, but some things never change, like baseball. In fact, why take my word for it when James Earl Jones can say it much more majestically in Field of Dreams? The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. Spring training games begin later this week, but this season, there will be some changes that have never been tried in the major leagues before. Well, I don't know if it's going to look different to the naked eye just because it's a small change, but the bases this season in Major League Baseball have increased their size slightly. They're going to increase from 15 inches to 18 inches. Neil Payne is the sports editor for our partners at 538, and changes that were announced last year are finally about to show up on a field near you, including ones that would make the trip between first and second base a few inches shorter. I think it's just all part of this way to encourage more base running, encourage more kind of bang-bang plays on the base paths, or guys legging out infield singles and things like that. And this might not even be the most dramatic change of this season. Starting this year, the game famously played without a clock will have a clock. With the bases empty, pitchers are going to have 15 seconds between when they get the ball back from the catcher and when they have to start their delivery to home plate. Welcome to the shot clock era for baseball. If you pitch too late, the umpire calls an automatic ball. This change especially will have a profound impact. Estimates have shown it could reduce the time of a ball game by more than 20 minutes. The rationale for Major League Baseball is to give the people more of what they want, like hits and stolen bases, and less of what they don't, like pickoff throws and big long pauses. Baseball might be losing younger fans at a greater rate than the other sports, and it needs to find a way to speed up pace of play. It needs to find a way to make the game a little bit more exciting. Will it upset purists? Sure, says Neil. Some old school baseball fans have an almost religious affinity for the sacred geometry and poetry of the game. But that's the problem. We have decades of data now showing old school rules aren't resonating with younger viewers. Wait, I got an idea though, Neil. I got an idea. What about like, if we're talking about making things happen, Z zigzagged base paths, right? <laughs> like that would be fun to watch. 
We, we, this is only the beginning, Neil. Yeah, the traditionalists might have a, uh, a real bone to pick with that. There was one rule traditionalists might be happy about. For the last several years, teams have been using advanced data to organize their defense, basically telling players to stand right where the ball is most likely to go. With power hitters, you're likely to see defenses clumped nearby on the field. This season, the infamous infield shift is a thing of the past. It's going to look more, wait for it, like a baseball game. other funny rule change here is that you'll be limited in when you can actually wave the white flag and bring in that non-pitcher just to lob the ball at the strike zone while you rest the real pitcher's arms. Like This used to be the really fun thing once a season when your shortstop will get to try out his knuckleball. Apparently, teams have been doing it too often now. Like They're trying to save their pitchers whenever they go behind. Too much silliness, said Major League Baseball. More on all these stories at abcnews.com or the ABC News app. I'm Brian Milkey. See you tomorrow. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.